Hey everybody, you are listening to the New Discourses Podcast. This is James Lindsay, and I want to talk to you about psychopathy and the origins of totalitarianism, which is the title of my newest essay, or newest long essay, on New Discourses that I just put out on Christmas Day. What a day for it. I wanted to give people a long read, since a lot of people are locked down and apart from their families. Before I kind of break into the subject, which hopefully will be, I mean, it's, it's a heavy, difficult subject. Hopefully I can do an okay job explaining it here in a looser way than the essay, which I hope you'll go read. Um, I wanted to tell you a little bit of like housekeeping. For those of you who subscribe to me, very much appreciated. I'm going to try for the next little while, whether it's on Patreon, Subscribestar, or YouTube, or whatever else, to do a kind of behind-the-scenes, what am I up to, kind of regular show for subscribers only. Hopefully I'll keep them between 5 and 10 minutes, 10, 15, 20 minutes, you know how it goes. Uh, but for subscribers anyway, I'm going to try to do a miniature podcast, so if you want to get into that, um, sign up on one of those subscriber platforms and you can hear my behind-the-scenes Um topic is kind of appropriate this first one because my first one I just actually recorded is have I gone crazy and we're talking about psychopathy and the origins of totalitarianism here today on the new discourses podcast so um I started off I'll actually read the first sentence of the essay and then kind of just launch into talking about what we're talking about so I want to break down the difficult language so that people who read the essay can understand what I'm saying. I know it's a hard read. I didn't mean for it to be an easy read because if it was an easy read, it'd be five times as long. It's already 8,600 words. That means it would be a short book. Maybe I will turn this into a book. I'm actually considering it. I think I could do some interesting work around this topic. But the first sentence of my essay is that many of the greatest horrors of the history of humanity owe their occurrence solely to the establishment and social enforcement of a false reality. So false realities are the real subject here. And borrowing off of the Catholic philosopher Joseph Piper, 1970, he wrote a very important essay. I encourage everybody to look it up and read it, uh, at least the first part of it. It's called Abusive Language, Abusive Power, and he refers in that essay to these false realities by a kind of more academic term that I will stick with called pseudo-realities. Pseudo just means false. So pseudo-realities are false reality. They are not the same thing as... It's important to understand that a pseudo-reality has to look real, right? It has to look real enough. It's a distortion of reality. It's not a complete fabrication. It's not a complete... um, alternative world where the, everything's completely different. It's it's a, it, it's a picture of reality reinterpreted in a peculiar way. They are not real, however. They're not accurate descriptions of reality. And the point of creating pseudo-realities is that the people who create and maintain the pseudo-realities gain access to power within the construct. So you hear all this stuff, blah, 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 as a social construct. Pseudo-realities are a social construct that are organized such that the people who participate in them intentionally and can force other people to participate in them unintentionally gain an advantage and can 
use that to manipulate them into to, to having power. So the creators of the pseudo-realities have power when people participate in pseudo-reality. They become sort of like gods of their own world. Uh, I point out in the essay quite stark terms. I want to be very plain how dangerous these are is that when these arise and start to take root, and the woke ideology is an example, the Soviet ideology is an example, Mao's ideology in China is an example, Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge is an example, all of these things, when they take root, there are examples outside of the communist world as well. All of the examples I just gave are in some way communist, including woke, yes. Uh, when they take root, we're in a bad place. The beginning of bad times is coming. And I've, I keep phrasing it this way. Our, we have stepped into a trap. Think like a bear trap, right? And it's about to spring shut on our leg, and we've got to do something. And our options are not great. We've either got to jerk our leg out of this thing quickly before it snaps shut, because it hasn't quite yet. Or we have to let it snap on our leg, either where it is or as we pull it out, in which case we're going to lose part of that limb. Or it snaps on us and holds us, and we're trapped. And that's where you're going to get some of the worst calamities we've seen in history. The Nazis, Stalin, Lenin, Mao, Pol Pot, all of these things are all in the same category. The Nazis were not a social or a communist uh, example, by the way. They are an example of a pseudo-real construction that was not communist. And so wars, genocide, civilizational collapse are the results when these things take over. And the West is flirting with one right now. So the nature of pseudo-reality, like I started to say a minute ago, is that they are false constructions of reality that look real enough. That's the key. They have to look real enough. As I put it in the essay, they must present a plausible but deliberately wrong understanding of reality. In the case of the woke example, they posit that our world is constructed in systems of power that are the ordinary operating state of affairs of our society, whether those are racism, sexism, patriarchy, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, ableism. It could just go on and on listing all of these so-called power dynamics that allegedly organize society. So it's not that we have society where people are interacting with one another, mostly of their own free will to the best of their ability, to the best of their knowledge, best of their understanding. No, everything's down to systemic power dynamics. Systemic power is the woke pseudo-reality. They are a kind of cult reality. The, the analogy I give in the beginning of the essay to try to explain pseudo-realities is that they are very much like what you run into in a cult. Earlier in the year, I had a very uh, well-received, very popular essay, the, the cult dynamics of wokeness, where I outlined the idea that the woke thing is a cult. Same thing could be said of the Soviets. The same thing could be said of Mao. The same thing could be said of Pol Pot. The same thing could be said of all of these examples. There is a cult interpretation of reality that has some kind of a some kind of a distortion that makes it plausible enough for people to believe but not accurate to where a small enough but sorry a small but large enough percentage of the population will begin to believe it 
participate in it, not know how, and then a bigger percentage will not know how not to participate in it. And this dramatically empowers the people who created it, who operate it, who benefit from it most, who I contend are psychopathic because they live outside of reality and they create and enforce their pseudo reality, their false reality linguistically as a social construct using techniques that are tantamount to bullying. But if you are completely divorced from reality, so let me explain what I mean by psychopathic here because a lot of people have already been upset that in my essay I mentioned psychopathy. They're like, there's, there's a definition. You have to be very formal about the definition. Oh, very smart people. Shut up. The very smart people are the useful idiots. I talk about that in the essay too. I'm using psychopathy as a kind of catch-all term, but I am quite aware of the specific term. The catch-all term is somebody who has, that I'm using is that it's somebody who has broken from reality in a way that they can no longer tell that they're broken from reality. And you say, that's not what psychopath means. It means more of this thing about being manipulative and power, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm aware of Hare's diagnostic criteria, his 20-question inventory or 20-point 20, 20 inventory. I'm aware of the, the technical definition. And my contention is that these things are actually constructed by people and driven most prominently by people who who meet that definition, the real definition. They are legitimately psychopathic, whether that's under, you can say, oh, I saw this on Twitter a lot. They're, no, this is more about personality disorders. <sighs> okay. I don't know what the difference between psychopathy and borderline personality disorder is at like the finest clinical level, but I don't care. And nobody should care. It is a manipulative, dangerous circumstance where somebody has a massive de deficit of empathy and lots of problems in terms of their behavior. We could lay out lots of different personality disorders, including clinical psychopathy, borderline personality, narcissistic personality, schizoid personality. And in fact, schizoid personality is largely ignored. Certain types of paranoia, certain types of social anxiety, Probably you could clump all these people together, each one some fraction of a percent of the population to get up to about 5 to 7% of the population who is generally mentally not well, creating an alternative reality that they can no longer distinguish from reality. But what I mean here is that these are people who cannot, this is the, this is the essence of what I mean by psychopathy. These are people who cannot cope with reality as it is and who have the psychological makeup necessary to make other people behave in a way that enables their problem. That's what I mean by psychopathy. They have the ability to create various, whether they're manipulative, whether they're linguistic, whether they're moral traps to bully people into behaving in a way that enables their inability to interact with reality as it is. And they have actually not just, they, they have a complete lack of empathy because they're so wrapped up in their own lack of ability to deal with reality that they feel totally entitled to manipulate other people into participating in their fiction. Trans women are women. There's one. There's one. No, I'm sorry. Trans women are trans women. And whether it's because of autogynephilia, whether it's because of whatever other mental illness is behind that, when you absolutely demand that trans women are women. That is a pseudo-real claim. 
It is not a real claim. Trans women are trans women is a real claim. And we can talk about the ethics. We can talk about the logic. We can talk about everything necessary around trans women are trans women. We can talk about what to do with them in sports, what to do with the situation with prisons, what to do with everything, civil rights, everything in real terms. But trans women are women is a pseudo real claim. It is not a real claim. And if you are willing to bully people into enabling it, and I brought up autogynephilia for a particular reason, for those of you who don't know what autogynephilia is, autogynephiles are people, nearly always, well, I guess they always have to be men, who have a sexual fetish of picturing themselves as a woman. In other words, it turns themselves, it turns them on to believe that they are a beautiful woman. And these are the people who it has been documented very often are the, are the most aggressive among trans rights activists with this very kind of bullying approach and this very intolerant trans women or trans or trans women are women mentality. Because why? Because it's their sexual fetish. And if they can't bully everybody else into participating in it, the 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 illusion's gone and it doesn't work and their fetish isn't as good. That's psychopathic. That's psychopathic. This isn't a moral judgment whatsoever about anybody. This is a description of reality of what this is. And so pseudo-realities are constructed by people who cannot cope with reality or can't even maybe distinguish reality for how it is and who are willing to manipulate other people. My claim is that the pseudo-realities are constructed, that, that lead to totalitarianism, are constructed in a way that leads other people to participate in them until those people lose the ability, in a functional level, to distinguish reality from pseudo-reality. At which point they functionally become psychopathic as well. Do you follow me? So there are people who are, in some sense, clinically or essentially psychopathic. They have certain problems. They bully other people into believing certain pseudo-real claims, using mostly language games. Those people, the more and the longer they participate until they finally lose the ability to tell the difference, become functionally psychopathic in the same psychopathic ideology. So I'm talking actually about an ideology generated by psychopaths that the ideology itself could be described as psychopathic, and it generates in its participants a functional psychopathy so long as they are ensnared by it, whether that is that they participate in it, whether that is they don't know how not to participate in it. In other words, that they're held hostage by it. Okay? And so everybody who's trapped, everybody who's playing the game along with this, is participating in psych uh, psychopathy at a functional level. That's what the essence of my argument is. And people say, you can't do that. Well, I did. So... What I argue, to get into the more difficult parts of this, is that pseudo-realities, like I said, are created in order to give the people who create them power over other people. What's the point of giving them power over other people? To force them to participate in the pseudo-reality. Why are they forcing people to participate in the pseudo-reality? Because it's the only thing they can cope with. They can't cope with reality as it is. They can cope with the false reality they've constructed. If they get other people to play along, it's less likely that they have to cope with reality as it is. So they create a cult around that using various mostly linguistic manipulations. In the case of the woke and also communists often before them, you see a lot of double meanings of words. 
You see a lot of Kafka trapping. You see a lot of the Martin Bailey strategy. So what are those double meanings of words? You see words like um, diversity. What does diversity mean? Or inclusion. What does inclusion mean? So diversity, we think, means, oh, well, we need different people with different views. No, obviously diversity in their language means that we hire people with a critical consciousness who uh, think about diversity in the same way. So we're going to preferentially hire people who are in disempowered identity groups. There's your pseudo-reality. We're going to think in power dynamics. We're going to preferentially hire people who are within that, who understand it from within. In other words, we're going to hire functional psychopaths. And because you can't tell the difference between functional psychopaths and real psychopaths very well within this thing, you're going to hire an abnormal number of activists who are psychopathic and grifters who know how to milk the system because they're actually psychopaths and have no empathy about the problem. So the ultimate point of creating a pseudo-reality is power, the power to enforce people to participate in your crazy pants world. That's double meanings are one way to get there. What is inclusion? I brought up inclusion. Sorry, I just distracted myself. Uh, Inclusion is repressive tolerance, right? It doesn't mean including people. It means including people according to this pseudo-real understanding of um, power or of, of the nature of society. So it means making sure that nobody who has access to, to systemic power can possibly do anything, including just being present or saying anything, that might upset somebody who has been disenfranchised by that alleged systemic power. Again, that's all pseudo-real. It's not real. So therefore, it means people who have access to the system of power, white people, men, straight people, have very strict speech codes or are left out. They're excluded in the name of inclusion. Whereas people who are on the losing end of the stick can get away with pretty much anything except, of course, violating the uh, pseudo-reality. You can't say something that goes against the pseudo-reality because then people would see through it. So that's what gets excluded. It's what Marcuse, Herbert Marcuse, the neo-Marxist of the Frankfurt School, called repressive tolerance. You must repress that which is intolerant according to the pseudo-reality. So hopefully you're starting to see how this works. Another one is a Kafka trap. A Kafka trap is is what white fragility is all about, or if you follow me on Twitter, election fragility. Um, Kafka trap is when your denial of guilt is taken as proof of guilt. So, you know, I'm not a witch. Well, that's what a witch would say. That's a Kafka trap. It's named after... um, Kafka's novel, The Trial, where the protagonist, Joseph, is put through this kind of ordeal, a kangaroo court. So denial of guilt is proof of guilt. So the point is to use these kinds of manipulations. Again, the pseudo-reality is constructed in language. It is an artificial description of reality that's just plausible enough to sell itself. The name for the woke one is liberation, liberationism, if you want. It's about systemic power, the name for the communist one. Uh, this, I mean, Soviet is a better way to look at it. The way for the Soviet one is that the party is going to lead you to the thing. Um, the, that's what the point of Lenin and Stalin was, is that they created the party that was, you know, they were, they were technically bourgeois, but they were going to lead 
the the people to the through the the proletariat revolution because the proletariat apparently were too unwashed of masses to be able to do it for themselves as marx predicted so then you have to create this party which tends to throw people into blenders um before it's all over starve them or shoot them or whatever else why because they're going they're not participating properly in the pseudo reality which isn't real so of course they're not participating in it correctly um the point is power the point is giving themselves power and then the way that this works um the reason that this works i should say is because there's some kind of utopianism involved there is this belief by the psychopathic people in the heart of the thing that if we just enable their inability to live with reality as it is then then the world will be perfect if we just get rid of all of the things that resist then the world will be perfect there there this is where schizoid personality becomes particularly poignant um, there are many features of schizoid personality, but one of them is that they tend to retreat emotionally from the world and create in their minds kind of a, they tell themselves stories about how social interactions in particular are supposed to go or how the world is ordered and they kind of flip out when the world doesn't match their, their thing. Um, you kind of have that here. Of course, uh, it's not the whole story, but there's this view that the world is working out according to like a novel being written in people's heads and if you just get rid of the problems that that the psychopathic people creating the pseudo reality can't handle then everything will be fine the problem is the real problem in reality is that this is a pseudo reality it doesn't work it doesn't work for in particular normal people and by normal people i mean not psychopaths it doesn't actually work for anybody, but the party, the psychopaths in charge, uh, get to make it work for them for a while until the whole thing falls apart. And so there's this utopian drive in the middle of this whole thing. And obviously, if you've looked up the word, you would know that utopia means nowhere. Um, utopias don't exist. Utopias are not going to come into reality um, so the point is is to create a utopia for the psychopaths. When you, if you look back at Stalin or Lenin or Mao, and you listen to that sentence again, the point is to create a utopia for the psychopaths. It all kind of makes sense. And this is the same thing I'm trying to tell people. This is the same thing that the woke are doing right now. The psychopaths are the liberationists whether that's black liberation, whether that's queer liberation. And I'm not saying this isn't about black people. This isn't about gay people. It's about people with liberationist politics. In other words, people who have adopted. They don't know how to live in the world as it is. They have to live in this utopia where the specters of racism that they conjure into the world or the specters of homophobia that, that, that they conjure into the world or exaggerate are completely and absolutely stamped out. If you look back to the Puritans, they had to stamp sin completely out. It's like that. But the sins are these systemic power dynamics rather than, you know, the temptations of Satan or whatever. So um, this, like I said, is done in language. Um, the the title where I got pseudo-reality, the title of the essay that uh, Joseph Piper wrote, was abuse of language, abuse of power, the key being abuse of language. And that's actually super important because it also will tell you who <laughs> who are our useful idiots and our psychopaths tend to be. So 
they tend to be people who are smart and linguistically savvy, but not necessarily great at anything else. That's if we were going to go all Nietzschean on it, where his idea of resentment comes into the, the picture, resentment, that curdled envy of knowing that you're kind of, in this case, competent or special or whatever, but you're not actually all that competent or special. As my friend Peter Boghossian's always called them, they are um, under-accomplished, dyspeptic malcontents. That's uh, it's a good way to phrase resentment. And so there are people, though, also who have high linguistic intelligence and uh, relatively broken empathy. So linguistically skilled psychopathic people are the ones who create pseudo-realities and manipulate people into them. In the past, if you talk about somebody like Lenin or Stalin there's, or even Hitler, there's often a lot of charisma behind it. The woke movement appears to lack charisma entirely, which is probably good. Um, but nevertheless, they're extremely... It came out of English departments, for fuck's sake. It is extremely linguistically savvy. And so it's extremely, more than maybe any of these previous examples, savvy at creating uh, double meanings of words or multiple meanings of words and manipulating language and creating traps and tricks with language and these kind of pseudo-real uh, manipulations that, that enable them to get, in particular, other intelligent, useful idiots that I call very smart people to rationalize the thing for them. This is actually something, if I'm not mistaken, that Piper points out, but I read a lot of things back to back before I wrote this essay, so I may be mixing some things together. Um, you often will have, with these psychopathic pseudo-realities, what you will often have, to put it as bluntly as possible, is that normal people don't think anybody else is psychopathic. They don't think like psychopaths. They think like normal people. They have normal logic, they have normal morals, and they therefore presume that other people have normal logic and normal morals. This, by the way, is the weakness of liberalism. You have all of these like neo-reactionary tough people, tough guys or whatever on the internet saying like liberalism has failed, liberalism has failed, and all these kind of hardcore conservatives or whatever saying liberalism has failed. No, liberalism has weakness. And its weakness is not necessarily being able to spot psychopathic linguistic manipulations and say no. And academics are particularly weak to this, partly because they want to always consider that idea and they don't want to be the closed-minded person. This is kind of where you know Richard Dawkins was talking about something completely different, but when he very famously said you want to be open-minded but not so open-minded your brains fall out, that's a key liberal concept. If you are so open-minded that your brains fall out, you're going to become a useful idiot or aka a very smart person for one of these uh, psychopathic pseudo-reality manipulations when it comes up and starts to gain power. So what these people do is they hear a word like diversity or inclusion that has these two meanings, and the activists mean something. So here's an example from uh, Washington State. At the beginning of the year, this year, 2020, I guess most people hear this first in 2021, so the beginning of the year last year, there was uh, an equity task force in Washington State, and they said that we're going to make the definition of equity be disrupt plus dismantle. It's a very rare moment where they say, well, they're doing it very commonly now, but at the time it was very rare that they were saying things so explicitly, or as we say, saying the quiet part out loud. And so 
they were saying very clearly that when they say equity, they mean disrupt plus dismantle. But then I had that fireside chat right around the election with Brett Weinstein and Jesse Single. And we were like, Biden has this huge equity plan. Remember, equity equals disrupt plus dismantle is a definition that was worked into a legal task force empowered by the state legislature and governor of Washington last year. Here we are in uh, late October of the same year. And Jesse's like, no, equity just means something about fairness. And I think he like read the definition or something like that off of, are, are you kidding me? Or you see this like when, um, when we have uh, the judge, Amy Coney Barrett, bring up the idea of sexual preference and then people went berserk and said that's, that's homophobic and it's a slur. And it's offensive, and no, everybody's like, "What are you talking about?" And then they changed the dictionary later that day, the same day. They changed the dictionary. I think Merriam-Webster changed the dictionary to say that it's an offensive slur. We've seen this now with the World Health Organization change the definition of herd immunity around the pandemic. Herd immunity is now a term within vaccination. It's no longer just a description of when a sufficient number of people in a population become functionally immune to the disease by one means or another so that it can't really functionally spread. This willingness to manipulate definitions is something that happens. And this, the people doing this are psychopathic. And the people who are useful idiots are very smart people, as I like to call them, will then step in and say, no, no, that's not quite correct. They must mean this very reasonable liberal thing. No, they don't. They mean something radical and insane. They don't mean the very reasonable liberal thing. Hmm. You would have to be a conspiracy theorist to think that they mean that. That sounds very conspiratorial. This is what happens. This is how it works. So your average, very smart, useful idiot person gets manipulated into rephrasing the tenets of the pseudo-reality, the psychopathic pseudo-reality, rephrasing that in normal speak to make sure normal people feel comfortable with it. And then they have their own cultural milieu, the very smart people, the useful idiots, that's very high-minded. And the high-minded people couldn't dare be caught up thinking a conspiracy theory. They couldn't dare be thinking something that those crazy deplorables would be thinking. They can't touch it. And because they have their own little like status web, and they can't possibly think, because they're very smart, but they're not extremely smart, they can't possibly understand that the double meaning here is being used by people who willfully mean to apply the radical meaning and not the more reasonable one. They can't see that those people are not actually liberals. They, they call themselves liberals a lot of times, but they're not liberals. They can't see it because they're very smart, but they're not extremely smart. They then rationalize and defend the psychopathic ideology, the cult ideology, and make it seem safe and even, in fact, reasonable. So they launder. They ideologically launder a psychopathic cult ideology and make it more plausible and to make it seem more safe, where that makes normal people have a harder and harder time trusting their own senses and their own eyes, which means lured further and further into the psychopathic manipulations of the pseudo-reality. Like I said, I think academics are probably the most susceptible to this, partly because what I just said, their open-mindedness, their willingness to be extremely charitable to 
unlikely ideas, which is a virtue. I don't want to crap on that. That's a virtue. But also because that social milieu, they're all up in their kind of, you know, hoity-toity, academically elite social milieu where everybody is always a prim and proper and absolutely correct. And who you wouldn't dare say fuck. Uh, and they're so scared. They wouldn't dare make a your mom joke on somebody on the internet. You'd have to write a bad article about such a person who's lost their mind, obviously. Look behind the curtain. Uh, these, the very smart people are caught up in a social milieu and they are on average when they're academic, afraid to not be liked more than average. I had Peter Boghossian call me on the phone one day telling me about his very, very intelligent friends and they're very kind people, they're very smart people, and he said they just can't figure out how these people get sucked into the woke ideology so so profoundly. And I was like, Peter, it's one variable more than any other. And then I expanded it to two immediately. But the one variable is there are people who are, are afraid not to be liked. And they're in a very prissy, cutthroat snobbish social milieu where all of their professional status is tied up in looking and thinking and acting the right way. And they're very afraid not to be liked. They're not particularly courageous people, typically, as we've, I think, all seen. The other thing is that they, of course, can't ever be the person who doesn't know what's going on or is wrong or doesn't understand something. So they have to be way too open-minded. Their brains are falling out. It's no good. And so... That's the beginning. I don't want to drag this out too much, but I want to explain a little bit more about how the pseudo-reality pushes itself. So I've just said with academics in particular that there are two features. There's, there's this intellectual feature that they don't want to be wrong or not understand something, and then there's this not wanting to be disliked feature. In other words, there's a intellectual feature and there's a moral feature, or if I might phrase it more bluntly, there's a logical feature and a moral feature. So there's a logical and moral dimension. And so what I'm saying is that, that pseudo-realities have their own fake logic and they have their own fake morals, and they use the fake logic to make their stuff seem plausible from within, but that befuddles people from without, and academics work really hard to rationalize it and understand it and therefore whitewash it, and then they have their own fake morality that they use to bully people morally and emotionally and to, to, in, to pull them into participating in the distortions of their pseudo-reality. So this sounds very complicated because now I have these words I used, pseudo-reality, false reality, and then I said it has a paralogical structure, paralogic. Para means beside. So it's a fake logic that lies beside logic, and I called it a paramoral structure. These aren't my own words, by the way. Uh, I, I read them. I, they, they come out of literature. Paramorals are, are a par paramorality is a fake non-morality that lies beside and copies. looks like a morality, but it's not a morality. A long time ago, I actually didn't have a word for this, and I said it's a framework morality. And the cultural relativists can't handle this. They think that everything is one of these. They think that every morality is a <laughs> every morality is a paramorality. They're all just framework moralities. They're they're uh, within the within one cultural framework that their morals, and you have no way to judge. And then you have people like religious people 
And then kind of moral realists who say things like, no, there is an objective morality. What its values are may or may not be known. The religious people tend to think that they are known and that they're given by God and that we, by studying scripture and whatever else there is revelation that pe people can better understand that. Myself, for my own part, I would say that they are scientifically discoverable or they are, they are values anyway that are derivable from scientifically discoverable facts about the ranges of human experience. The set of human beings is a constrained system. There's only so many things that happen within a, an, an organism that, that's still human. You get far enough away and you're a chimpanzee and it's not that far. So it's a relatively, you know, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of different things, there's a lot of cultures that, that rise up, there's a lot of social structures within all of the human variation. We can celebrate how diverse we are. But the truth is, every one of us is a lot closer together, and I mean that on a neurobiological level, than any chimpanzee. And chimpanzees are our nearest neighbor. And there's no ambiguity between human and chimp. None. Nobody's confused. So it's a constrained system. So there are some set of truths about human beings in, this, in that constrained system that say how humans work and how humans don't work, how humans respond positively and how humans respond negatively, what causes hurt, what causes flourishing, what causes pain, what causes suffering, what causes successful uh, social orders, what causes social orders that collapse and fail. There are lots of variables in that. I'm not saying it's a simple thing, but it is a constrained thing, and there are there. Are, describable truths that define an objective set of uh, a describable set of objective truths that, that constrain that and mor morality must be subject to that set of objective truths. So I'm not going to say, oh, there's necessarily objective single morality. Sam Harris fell into that trap with, with the, the moral landscape, I think, a bit. Um, but I think I'm basically saying the same thing he's saying in different words and hopefully a little more carefully. Nevertheless, Cultural relativists think everything's this paramorality. They think every single one can't be judged. There's nothing above it. Uh, every single one is just beside another. And I'm saying that that's, that's bollocks. And in particular, what I'm saying is that these pseudo-realities operate, they create literally a false morality. Um, religious people would be very much more adept at spotting it when they don't get sucked into the cult nature of it. And so I have these complicated words, pseudo-reality, compares to reality. False reality versus real reality. The the false reality is like a facsimile. It is a simulation. It is a <laughs> very postmodern um, stuff happens here because the postmodernists were kind of seeing this. They weren't nuts. They weren't just nuts and evil. They were seeing some of this. And I think there's actually a lot of trenchant analysis that could be with, be extracted, especially from people like Foucault and Baudrillard in, in this moment, maybe even Lyotard talking about the postmodern condition, to examine the nature of these pseudo-realities. What the problem is is that they didn't distinguish those from reality. Uh, they, they were too relativist for that. So within pseudo-reality, we have a fake logic that I called a paralogic. Who else has used that word? Uh, well, you have... Jean-Francois Leotard, which I just named, the postmodernist in the postmodern condition, talks about a paralogy. P-A-R-A-L-O-G-Y. Change that Y on the end to I-C, and you have paralogic. The short, long and short of what a paralogy is, is a lie. It is a false logic. It is, it's like bizarro logic. It's like bizarro world logic, where two plus two can equal five, as we've seen. 
although in reality it cannot equal five. It can only equal five by bending the rules, by there is no spoon, Ooh, that kind of bullcrap. It only works in the matrix. So paralogic just means a bogus logic, and in this case, the bogus logic is, in, in the woke case, I, when I say this case, in, in general, I should say that the paralogic doesn't have to be consistent because it's a paralogic. It, logic has to be consistent. Logic has to obey the law of non-contradiction. Paralogics can't because they aren't logical. They are logical within. It's kind of like I've described wokeness as like a comic book universe where if you know the rules of the universe or the matrix, why not? If you know the rules of the universe, you can do things. Superman can fly. You know, Spider-Man can shoot webs and has super strength and all these different things. You, you pick your favorite character. But you can't, like, mix them up. You can't make Spider-Man fly. Superman doesn't shoot webs. Um, each comic book universe has its own kind of internal logic. And that's a paralogic. And in this case, the paralogic is always set up, in the woke case particularly, the, the, it's always set up around this idea that systemic power is the fundamental operating system. So a paralogical statement in critical race theory, which is the first assumption of critical race theory, is that racism is the ordinary state of affairs in society, not an aberration from them. Therefore, the question is no longer, did racism take place, but how did racism manifest in this situation? That is a paralogical claim. The logic is not the regular logic. It's let's begin with the assumption of racism and then look for it, rather than Let's not assume something is there until we see evidence for it. It's paralogical. And then, so pseudo-reality has a paralogic and it has a paramorality. I talked about what paramoralities are a moment ago. They are a false morality. And in this case, it is the liberationist paradigm. If you read Cynical Theories, where Helen and I wrote about the postmodern knowledge principle and the postmodern political principle, the postmodern knowledge principle that we described mostly mostly is the paralogic. It's not quite because there's just a little bit more to it of wokeness. The postmodern political principle that there are these systems of power that must be overthrown. We have to act in what Jonathan Rauch called a radically egalitarian way to make up for the sins of the past, for the injuries of history. That is their paramorality. That's why there are always these moral double standards. That's why the girl got kicked out of UT for saying the N-word in kind of a cutesy way, because white people absolutely can't say that word, but it's okay if black people do. That's why these double standards always exist, because the paramorality takes into account the power dynamics in every single thing, and then it bullies people who don't participate. Don't want to have sex with a trans woman? Must be that you hate them. Can't possibly be anything to do with your your attraction. The fact that you are, say, a straight man and that you are not interested in somebody with a penis can't be anything like that. It's, that's reality. But we're over here in pseudo reality, and the paramoral explanation for why you don't want to do that is because you're a bigot. And so this is why everybody's a bigot. Everything's racist. Everything's sexist. Everything's misogynist. Everything's transphobic. Everything's homophobic. Everything's ableist. And you can find it in anything because the paramoral structure requires it. The paralogical structure explains it in terms of their theory. Their theory is their paralogical form. It's how they explain and justify in this kind of like topsy-turvy, kind of nonsense, broken logic. I hope that breaks down these three words, pseudo-reality, paralogic, 
paramorality are less complicated than the essay makes it seem, and if you're not familiar with them, false reality that has a broken logic that explains how it works and a broken moral system that enforces uh, its, it, its rules, it, it's, its offense-based rules in this case with the woke in particular. So the goal is to use the paralogic to get people to buy in to the pseudo-reality, to use the paramorals to bully them. And you will see this happen with the woke all the time. They do the same thing. They come in, they try to give you the stupid systemic explanation. It makes no sense. You know it makes no sense. And unless you're a very smart person, you don't fall for it. You don't try to rationalize it. You, you just see this is nonsense. And the second you call it nonsense, they come out and call you a racist. Boom. There's the paramorality. They all of a sudden try to beat you over the head with some moral claim that only makes sense in the, uh, the pseudo-reality. You're not a racist in reality because you disagree with them. You're a racist in pseudo-reality because you disagree with them. The woke pseudo-reality, you are a racist because you didn't agree with critical race theory. So you can see the pattern again and again. They try to pull you in, blind you with bullshit, as it were, with the paralogic, and then the next thing you know, you don't go along, wham, out comes the moral ruler across your knuckles. And if it doesn't work on you, they go to your employer. If it doesn't work on your employer, they go to your, you know, some administrator. They keep going higher and higher. They go after your family. They go after your friends. They put you on social media. They, whatever it happens to be. See how it works? And what they're trying to do is go up the chain until they find somebody who can get sucked into that paramoral demand or sucked in by that paramoral bullying really and the paralogical explanation can then be deployed to explain why what you did was evil and bam the person's participating in pseudo reality and the reason you're getting fired is because your boss got bullied or tricked or both into participating in pseudo reality instead of staying in reality with you that's what's going on that's what's going on so when you hear the famous story about the communist greengrocer where you've got the sign about the communism and supporting the state or whatever it is, and nobody really believes it. But they all know if they're the first person to take, if they all took their signs down, they couldn't do anything. But whoever the first person is to take their sign down is going to get shot. That's how it works. And that's how these psychopathic pseudo-realities almost always become violent because the eventually it's the only way to enforce enough people to participate. What you do is you 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 have a, a small core of genuinely psychopathic individuals. You lure in a wider core of mentally unwell, susceptible people who become uh, fellow travelers and actually probably increase their degree of mental illness as they dive into the pseudo-reality and participate more in it. You create around that a bigger set of people who are sympathetic to either the paralogical explanations, they gain a critical consciousness, as it's phrased, or they become woke, as it might be called. They, they awaken as communists. They awaken as cultists. They're given, you know, that cult awareness. Those people become sympathizers. They are trapped once they do so within the pseudo-logic and the pseudo-morality, in particular the pseudo-morality. They know if they defect, they're screwed. Their whole social, their whole social network is going to turn on them. They know. 
And they also, they've already bought in. By, notice this, they bought into that. This is so important. They have bought into that paramoral structure. They believe that it re, it is required. They no longer have proper morality. They are now in the paramorality. So to be a good person in their minds means that they have to participate. So the if you think of it like physicists would, they are in a deep potential well. And getting them out of that potential well requires a tremendous perturbation. They have to, something terrible has to happen. They have to be just absolutely shocked. They have to be dragged out. They have to be separate. Ideally, in all culty programming, they have to be separated from the cult, which continually reinforces that. And so they're trapped. That's the sympathizer ring kind of around the properly mentally unwell. And I will claim that that sympathizer ring that they are making themselves less and less mentally well as well. They are becoming increasingly psychopathic the more they participate in that logic. Now, I'm not meaning that they become clinically or essentially psychopathic. They're functionally so. They are not well, but if they separate from the cult logic, while it might have done some damage, they will probably go back to normal or all, most of the way or all of the way. Around that ring, you have a bunch of people that are even more that are held hostage. They don't know how not to participate in it because they don't want to get called a racist, for example, or they don't want to be accused of having bourgeois attitudes as it might have been. Or if we go back to like the Pharisees, you don't want to be accused of being, you know, outside of the law. They don't want to be accused of being in league with the devil if we're talking about the Puritans. They don't want to have, I don't know, Jewish sympathies or whatever it would have been with the Nazis. So you have this group of people that are held hostage. And my claim is that you have this very small contingent of legitimate psychopaths in the middle, a ring still relatively small of mentally unwell people who participate in the pseudo-reality created therein and who push it. Those, from what I have read, those two groups together very stably in all such circumstances probably total up to about 6% of the, of the functional population. We see that kind of with the hardcore progressive activists with that hidden tribe study was at what, 8%. So we're in that range. The sympathizers, there's your extra couple of percent. The sympathizers are pretty much, they're a bigger ring. But my claim is that once you get enough people who are in that sympathizer or core psychopathic center, plus enough people of the population who are captured by the paralogical structure or the more importantly the paramoral structure and don't know how not to participate then you have a sufficiently big critical mass of the population to tip it over into totalitarianism run by that party in the middle who are psychopathic that's what i'm saying is the dynamics when i said that the title of this is psychopathy and the origins of totalitarianism that's it right there and the way to avoid it is to refuse to participate as you you have to that 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 held hostage group has to go away the sympathizer group has to be evaporated the broken people in the middle the the fully woke are in a bad place most of the people you know who you consider to be woke are are in the sympathizer ring. They are trapped within it. They are believers. They are trapped within it, but they're not functionally broken like the people at the core, many of whom are actually not even believers at all. Some are. Some are absolute believers, um, many of whom are just grifters because psychopathics, uh, psychopathic uh, pseudo-realities are open to people who don't... <laughs> 
who cares which morality, which logic you use, if it's to your advantage, if you're a psychopath. So the opening for grifters and pseudo-reality is super high. They don't care if they participate in reality or pseudo-reality. It's all just whichever gives them the most advantage. That's the definition of um, being psychopathic in the clinical sense that my detractors about this essay said that I don't understand. Okay, so kind of one last point about this um, is that uh, if you if you are a Nietzsche fan, I'm not, but if you're a Nietzsche fan, when he talks about in a genealogy and morals and he talks about the slave morality, we have this kind of inverted perversion of the existing moral structure. That's what the paramorality is. The paramorality is Nietzsche's slave morality. It's just a different word for it, but slave morality doesn't really like I don't know, it's never resonated with me. This idea of a fake morality, false morality that lies next to real morality uh, worked better for me. So pick your favorite words. I don't care. But uh, just kind of as an aside, if you're a Nietzsche person, there you go. Um, so I have this fun sentence in the essay. I'll just kind of throw in here. I'll read it. Um, it's a smart one. Uh, people were making fun of it, so I have to say it here too. I said, put classically, paralogic is pathos subverting logos, and paramorality is pathos dominating ethos. So you can go meditate on that and see if you can figure out what it is, but my next sentence is not so complicated. No society can be healthy or long survive in such a state meaning when those have become dominant. False reality will not suffice because no matter how hard we believe anything, reality is what you run into when your beliefs are false. If we try to occupy a false reality, whether it's communism, whether it's neoconservatism, we're toast. It will catch up to us eventually. I make the claim in my essay that the nature of a false reality and a false morality and a false logic is that the party, that functional core in the middle who is designed to benefit the most from this pseudo-reality for whom it is constructed, will become increasingly capricious. They will increasingly change the rules. They will increasingly set the set up the paralogical system and the paramoral system so that they get to decide what is true and what is right as they go because it makes it almost impossible to keep up with what they're doing. It gives them more and more power, which is the point. Um, like I said, I've kind of said it here a few times, the traditional modern name given to the cabal of corrupt experts that's running the pseudo-reality is the party. If you go read communist, like if, if you go to marxist.org and just go and read what they think about, if you, they actually, have, it's kind of like I have this encyclopedia, I'm making on new discourses of woke terminology. They have an encyclopedia or dictionary of all kinds of communist relevant terms. And if you go read their entry for Stalinism, they tell you this. They believe that. So here's what happened with Stalin. Marx's revolutions weren't happening. Eventually what you had, and I, I guess I said Stalin, but we've got to go back further to, to, the, to Bolsheviks and Lenin because it's really Leninism. Stalin was Leninism 2.0. Mao is Leninism 3.0. Woke is is Leninism 4.0. There you go. Um, but and we don't have to just linger in communism because like it happens other places. But what happened was that the Bolsheviks were technically part of the bourgeoisie. Marx predicted, I should say, just to back up, that um, the proletariat would eventually have class consciousness. In other words, they would awaken to his paralogical 
or uh, description of the Marxist pseudo-reality. They would, you see what I'm doing here? So they would have class consciousness that would cause them to awaken. They would then lead a proletarian revolution that would then overthrow the bourgeoisie, the capitalists, and establish the first socialist and eventually communist utopia. That's his pseudo-reality. Class consciousness was part of the paralogical form. All those arguments that they made are all in the Marxist paralogic. And then eventually you started to have people getting browbeaten for having, you know, capitalist sympathies or bourgeois attitudes, and there's your paramorals. This has persisted all the way up through Mao, uh, whether it was from Lenin, Stalin, or Mao. Uh, So what you had with with the Bolsheviks, you had this, this new idea that certain members of the bourgeoisie, very basically rich people, upper middle class, underaccomplished dyspeptic malcontents, probably with somebody who had a head injury level psychopathy named Lenin uh, at their head. They were going to use their privilege as bourgeois people, but who had allegedly the proletarian class consciousness as communists, to usher in. They were going to shepherd people through those stages because the the proles weren't doing it on their own. So all of a sudden you have this bourgeois party that forms. It's going to usher people through. This is a two-stage process. Stagism is what they call it in the Marxist literature. And they say that that's why it failed because stagism doesn't work. If you have a bourgeois party, eventually it's just going to be bourgeois rule and they're going to bring in bourgeois values and the bourgeois values are going to screw everything up. And notice they just had, it's like they pulled their their, their ripcord and the canopy popped open and the thing shot out and they're, oh yeah, Lenin and Stalin weren't real communism. You know, they, they, they pulled the escape hatch as the jet crashed into the ground. So they don't have to take any responsibility for their actions. Why not? Of course, because it's pseudo-reality. It's not reality. Consequences happen in reality. They don't happen in pseudo-reality. So the paralogic and the paramorals continue and they just figure out a new way to frame them. And so you go from Lenin to Stalin, from Stalin to Mao, from Mao to Woke. That's what's going on here. So um, their claim is that the party came into, the, the party exists to shepherd people through the, into the pseudo-reality. And so I'm going to tell you that people like Black Lives Matter are the party that are trying to shepherd people. The trans rights activists are the party who are trying to shepherd people into the woke Leninist 4.0 revolution. That's what's happening. That's the story of right now. And it is a pseudo-reality. It is not a real reality. And we will all pay the piper in the end. And they do it by bullying people, by saying that they have white privilege. That's the equivalent of having a bourgeois attitude. Whatever else. Pick your favorite one. Pick your favorite one. We're familiar with all these arguments. So anyway, the party is going to come into existence to try to do this. I am going to make the case that the socialists are wrong, that they believe that Marx was ultimately right, and that if it weren't for people like Lenin and Stalin screwing it up, then we'd be in, we'd be in good shape. Uh, that communism, real communism has never been tried. My contention is that actually Lenin figured something out that's correct, which is that no, the proletariat's not going to do any of this overthrowing nonsense at all, ever. And you have to have this literally petite bourgeois bullshit cabal 
that decides they're going to create a pseudo-reality and force everybody, shepherd everybody through it using por- paralogical arguments and paramoral bullying. And so you're always going to have, this is why it collapses in such terrible, grandiose ways every time. And this is why the woke problem will do the same thing if it's allowed to. It will lead people straight into the blender, just like every other freaking attempt at this thing. It's not real. Okay. So the essay goes on. I don't want to like drag this out because the essay is many thousands of words. Uh, the essay goes on to argue at, from this point that um, this is fundamentally psychopathic. The pseudo-reality depends on and is driven by psychopathy. The people who will become the party are going to be the ones who are the most psychopathic by design. They will be. That's who started the thing. That's who's going to grift the thing the hardest. That's who's going to buy into the thing the hardest because the whole pseudo-reality is suited to enable their psychological problems. We have to live in their pathologies, their delusions, their problems. And the whole point of the pseudo-reality is to force everybody to do that. And... What they do is they make they, they affect this by making other people temporarily or functionally psychopathic in the same way. We call these people today woke. Um, to kind of drive that point in, I said in the essay, eventually a normal person subjected to these circumstances ceases to be normal. This occurs when they awaken to a full consciousness in the pseudo-reality. In other words, they become woke. Did they awaken a class consciousness? That's Marxism. Did they awaken a... Um, Critical consciousness, that's the neo-Marxist version. Have they awoken uh, in the sense of being woke? That's the woke version. Uh, that's what's happening here. So eventually a normal person subjected to these circumstances ceases to be normal. This occurs when they awaken to a full consciousness in the pseudo-reality. At that point, this is key, at that point they will have reached a place where from their perspective pseudo-reality is reality and reality is the pseudo-reality. That is, they will be functionally psychopathic themselves, enthralled to the paralogic of the pseudo-real delusion, and with the bifurcated and narrow ethics and moral virtues that operate under its paramoral system. In other words, they will become psychopathic. Another way to put that is that they become part of the cult. Uh, and I said that it's presumably t- temporary. Uh, but the, when you lose the ability to distinguish reality from pseudo-reality, you're in a bad place. And this is why it's so hard. You know, we wrote this book, Peter and I wrote this book, How to Have Impossible Conversations, and people are like, you can't even have conversations with the woke. How can anybody have a conversation with the woke? And in the book we say, well, to have a conversation, you have to be willing to converse. Well, this is something that Piper raises. I mentioned Joseph Piper is where I got the term pseudo-reality, the Catholic philosopher. In his essay in 1970, Abuses of... Uh, abuse of language, abuse of power, he points out that it's not actually possible to have a conversation. It is not a conversation when people occupy pseudo-reality. You cannot have a conversation between reality and pseudo-reality. You're not on the same footing. And so a conversation between those people is not possible until a cult deprogramming has occurred. They are operating with a, with a, with a paralogic that describes pseudo-reality, not logic that describes reality. And their morals are a paramoral system that are captured in pseudo... that only make sense in pseudo-reality. They're only, they're only virtuous in pseudo-reality. They're not virtuous in reality. And so you have nothing, whether logical nor moral, to appeal to to reach 
common ground. And so this is where in the essay I say one might refer to the spread of a psychopathic ideology and its pseudo-reality by now more familiar phrases like the madness of crowds, nodding to Douglas Murray, um, or even sociopolitical zombification. A lot of people have noticed and they've said this whole zombie apocalypse thing is what's going on. The way out is to cut those two threads, the the paramoral framework and the paralogical structure. If you can sever the thread, those are the two threads that hold up pseudo-reality. There is a logical thread or an intellectual thread. That's their paralogic. And there is a moral thread. That's the paramorality. If you can sever one or both, especially both of those threads, if you can call their fake logic for fake logic, if you can call their fake morals for being immoral, then you can sever the threads for people who are only lightly indoctrinated or are not yet indoctrinated and are just held hostage. And when you when when they lose enough support and no longer have critical mass, they can't affect their stupid revolution and we can get out of this mess. The trick is really almost as simple as realizing, just seeing this for what it is. It is psychopathy. It is crazy pants. And it is morally evil. And I mean it, evil. These people can be very well-meaning. They can care, da-da-da-da-da. They can be sincere believers, blah-blah-blah. But they are participating in a psychopathic, logical, and moral system. And when you can see that, when you learn to see that, then you can cut those threads and fewer and fewer and fewer people will participate and then they have no critical mass and they can't pull a revolution because they're just uh, troublemakers. That's refusing to bow is, is, for example, one of the ways to resist the paramoral. They come after you, they call you a racist, they demand an apology, you don't apologize. You just don't. You refuse to apologize. They come after you. They come after your business. They say you need to do this. You need to issue this statement. You don't. You, I'm not going to participate in this. They call you a racist and you say, call me whatever you want. I'm not going to participate in this. They say that you're, you know, that's even more racist and you say, call me whatever you want. I'm not going to participate in this. It's not true. It's not real. It's not moral. It's not helping. I'm not participating. The second, the whole game is to get you to give up one form of authority or another, whether it's, I know this is a big word, whether it's epistemic authority, in other words, that you know what you're talking about, or whether it's moral authority, that you can feel competent, that you're a good person. The whole game, if you've read Shelby Steele's White Guilt, you understand the moral authority argument. He says that's the whole thing there. White guilt is the tool by which they evacuate moral, they evacuate moral authority from white people and manipulate them into uh, enabling black power. That's Shelby Steele's argument in White Guilt. Um, you should read this book. It's very important. Same thing happens with very smart people. is they, they try to make you feel like you're the one who doesn't understand something. You don't even know the definition of racism. It's systemic now. You don't even understand. You, you don't think in a systemic way. You're not thinking. You're just thinking of very basic individual things. You're not thinking of the more complex and sophisticated. So you see, they're, they're, they're undermining your epistemic authority, or they throw around these stupid words that they make up or twist the definitions of and say, well, you don't even, you can't even make an argument because you don't even know what, what like a romantic means. You know, no, screw you. I'm not using your stupid words. 
no, no, you didn't say cisgender. Well, that's because it's not a word. And if you refuse, again, the, the form will always be, they're going to try to convince you with the pseudologic and then they're going to go after you with the paramorality, or sorry, with the, with this paralogic and they're going to go after you with the, the, the paramorality if you don't play along, if they're the smart type. Otherwise, they'll just go after you with the morality if they're the, the weak type, um, the less smart type. And if you just don't play along, just continue to not play along, refuse to go along, that can create in itself a cascade. Look at, I mean, just think for one minute, any of these people that you've watched apologize to the woke for some nonsense, do you respect them more? Of course you don't. Of course you don't. Think back to that football guy. Was it Drew Brees? Is that his name? You respect him more crying on TV? No, you don't. Why? Because we're extremely sensitive to that stuff. Psychologically, you see that, you think weak, no respect left for that person. You cave into the paralogical or paramoral garbage and people think that you're a fool or weak. You lose your epistemic or moral authority. The whole game is to get you to lose those. So you can't lose those. Think of those as freaking treasure that you have to guard. They're like the most valuable things in the world. You can't lose those. Okay, so if they come after your business, ignore them and keep doing your business. I understand if it's your boss, like this only works when it's you, right? This is why, of course, this, this COVID thing is so useful for crushing individual entrepreneurship because now you're all subject to a boss of a big corporation that's faceless and totalitarian in and of itself. And so all of a sudden you have to play on their terms, not your own, and you can't go start your own business because we're in the middle of a pandemic. They won't let you do it. Yeah, I get it. See how it kind of goes together, don't you? It's, 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 we're not in a good place, guys. We're in a trap. But this is how you have to do it. You have to refuse to participate in either of those two things. You have to preserve your moral authority. You, you, you have to realize you being attacked in a paramoral system does not make you a bad person because being a bad person is a moral statement, not a paramoral statement. They're trying to tell you that you're a bad person in, in upside down land. Well, bad person in upside down land is probably a good person. So calm down. Keep going. As I wrote here, and this was based straight off of some people who talked to me, I have at least three examples of people, two in a business and one with just a uh, popular Twitter account, um, simply refusing to participate in the pseudo-reality, to utilize its paralogic or to bow to its paramorality, and to live your life as though those things are utterly irrelevant to yours is a powerful act of defiance against an ideological pseudo-reality. It requires nothing more of a person than a convicted statement that says this does not apply to me because it is not me or that is not even real demand evidence you want you know this is another another one you want to you want to win the paralogical game demand evidence this is a racist situation show me proof well immediately it's going to switch they don't have proof the cops aren't racist the institution isn't racist you're not a racist they don't have proof they're not going to be able to generate proof. So then they're going to hit you with, well, if you lived it, then you would already know. Asking for asking for evidence is itself racist. Well, there you go, paramorality. And then you say, that's BS. Show me the evidence, and then I'll take it seriously. And if you just continue to do this again and again and again, stop caving in, stop apologizing, stop saying you did something wrong when you didn't do something wrong, 
or as I wrote in this, this essay, just keep your head up and refuse to live your life on someone else's psychopathic terms, and you will do much against the budding of a totalitarian regime. You can try to refute it. That's more or less what I try to do with the new discourses here. I try to go into the, the, the paralogic and the paramorality and explain them. You have to know what you're doing. Best thing to do is to just not participate, refuse to participate. If you can get into it and explain it, that's even better. It's very hard. But if you're willing to, go learn enough about this. Go study the resources on new discourses. Read other stuff. Read the primary sources. Read, read these books on critical race theory. Learn what they're saying. But also be aware that they're trying that the whole point of that book is to induce you into a pseudo-reality with a paralogical form that is going to be the argument of the book that's manipulating moral feelings, moral intuitions. That's the paramorality. So I end the essay just to kind of summarize by saying you need to take the red pill. That's what dipping out of pseudo-reality means. The matrix is pseudo-reality. Taking the red pill is not a political statement. It doesn't mean that you became a conservative. It doesn't mean that you support Trump. It means, I mean, it mostly means that you know that the media is lying to you if you want to get real specific about it, but, and, and our political class of our so-called experts or whatever, the, the party. But what it really refers to is stepping out of the pseudo-reality and refuse, to being able to see it for what it is and refusing to participate in it. So I encourage you, you do not naturally become a conservative, you don't become a lunatic, you don't become a problem, you, you do become a deplorable, you're going to have to deal with that if you take the red pill. You should take the red pill. So that's the last thing I'll say. Um, if enough people take the red pill, we step out of the trap, we don't end up uh, falling into the totalitarianism that is rising around this movement. And if you don't understand that that's the nature of this movement, then you don't know what's going on. Uh, there's no other way to say it. You're trapped in the paralogical structure and you are beholden to, to a false morals, a false set of morals, a paramoral uh, moral system. And if you are in that situation, you don't know what's going on. You are not necessarily psychopathic yourself, but you are captured by a logic and a morality that's psychopathic that describes a reality that's not real. Um, so again, take that red pill. That's the last word. <laughs>